spread off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenza, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome and showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those that were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Bezeltahar, to Hanahiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Zazara, Abendigo. Thanks, Dee. That's a bit mean giving you a passage with so many tricky names, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm really excited about this series. Uh, am I speaking into this way too loud or am I? No, okay, it just feels like it's really loud. Um, and I'm really excited about the subject because this is really where the rubber meets the road with our faith. Um, we're in church a lot of the time. Uh, sorry, we're in church a small percentage of our week and in our workplaces a lot of the time. And um, in this series, we're really looking at how our faith integrates with our daily grind nine to five in a more significant way than just witnessing to someone at the photocopier. Now, I need to make a few caveats as we begin. And when I say workplaces, I most of that will be in paid work employment because that's where a lot of us are. But we need to broaden our understanding of what work means. Work doesn't just have to be paid employment. It could be places where uh, we are volunteering. could be in places where we're uh, helping run sports teams. Um, anywhere, really, where the sacred-secular divide meet. If you're uh, retired or if you're a stay-at-home full-time parent like me, um, just about all of what I'm going to say does still apply, so don't check out. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to refer to the workplace. So, Excuse me. Um, now, secondly, I'm not an expert in the subject. Um, I've done a fair amount of study on this uh, about uh, over the years, especially at Bible College, and I'm really passionate about it. Uh, it's something that I've wrestled with myself for a long time. How does my faith uh, interact with my workplace? Um, but I am not an expert, as I said, so there will be lots of things that um, you may be questioning and may ask. Feel free to ask questions. I w I'd love this to be a bit more interactive than just a me stand up front and tell you everything, because that's not how it works um, for me anyway. Uh, so feel free to raise questions, and if I can't answer them, I'm going to think about it, pray about it, come back to you with hopefully some more wisdom. Um, but the bottom line for the series or underlying point is really to reimagine who we are uh, as Christians in our workplace. Reimagining who we are as Christians in the workplace from God's perspective. And we need to wrestle with questions like, 
who is who is uh, who are we as Christians at our workplace? Why has God called us to this particular job? Uh, why do we work in a hostile work environment? Why do I have a difficult boss? How do I um, contact con- connect with God uh, outside of church and outside of the safety of my armchair where I might be having my quiet time? What is God's view on work? How do we uphold our faith in difficult places, uh, having difficult interactions with difficult people? And how does Sabbath fit in? So these are just some of the questions we're going to explore. This uh, is a series of talks that's going to build on each other. So um, please try to listen to them as a complete picture. If you miss one, they'll be on the website. I'm not exactly sure how long this series will last, probably four weeks, maybe more. Um, but yeah, we're going to hear from Mickey too at some point. So um, yeah, let's, uh, let's start by praying. Father God, we thank you that you um, are not a remote, distant God, but you are intimately connected with us. Um, you care about our day-to-day lives more than just what happens on a Sunday. You care about our influence in the world. You've placed us in specific places. We were all born for a specific time and a purpose. So, Father, as we dig into this material, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, you would encourage us, and you would show us your truth. You would show us how you want us to work and operate in the world. Thank you, Father. Amen. I had a situation a few years ago, uh, probably about 10 years ago, when I was working as a vet in one of the small animal practices in Auckland. And there are about three or four of us uh, vets and nurses in the prep room. And the prep room is the place where we kind of get all the animals ready for surgery um, we get them anaesthetised and clipped up, and we also do some minor procedures. It's not the sterile surgery. And I was at the computer writing up my case notes and surgical reports, and the nurses were standing around cleaning instruments, and they started talking about relationships and um, quickly moved on to sexual partners and experiences, and um, they were almost kind of comparing scorecards. And I found myself thinking, I just want to crawl into this computer. <laughs> I don't want to participate in this, in this conversation. Uh, they're going to think I'm a complete prude. Uh, I can't remember if I had a boyfriend at the time. Um, but regardless, my lifestyle was a complete stark contrast to theirs. Um, by the world standards, I was a complete loser. By God's grace, he had enabled me to abstain from sexual relationships before marriage, but um, which on the one hand I was very grateful for, uh, by God's grace, but on the other hand, I wanted to fit into the world, and I was a complete loser, I was a prude, um, and there would have been something very wrong with me, according to them. And I remember how sad it was that I was even feeling confused and upset about that, um, or even embarrassed. I didn't want to join in on the conversation, and this does reveal that I thought far too much of what they thought of me at the time. Um, and a few years later, if someone had had that conversation with me, I might have been able to um, express my stance on things with a bit more confidence and without embarrassment. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that often we live and work and engage in workplaces where there's a very different set of values. Um, there's a very different narrative at work than what we experience at church on a Sunday. Does anyone else relate to you? Yeah. Uh, It can be a really difficult place to be. And the first of the two tensions that I need to identify um, is a culture is defined by its narratives. Culture is defined by its stories. And we're caught between 
The story that the secular culture tells us, which is we are defined by our worth, our social status, how many hours we work, how many kids we have, how high you've risen up in your career, how popular you are, how good you look, and that list goes on and on. Wealth, power, and sex are held up as the gods with self at the centre. And the other narrative, the gospel culture, which has the biblical narrative, says something completely different, which most of us are familiar with. We're defined not by what we do or what we achieve or experience, but we are defined by who God says we are. We are dearly loved, forgiven, created in his image. Everything is a gift and not a right. He is the only God, and God, um, or Christ, is placed at the centre of our lives, not self. So they're two very different competing narratives. And as I look at Mickey, I remember some people obviously work for themselves, but they still have to interact with the secular world, so you can't count yourself out. <laughs> um, and there are other aspects of these narratives which speak to us. How we got here, the purpose of life, the definition of joy. And it's very cr- tricky as a Christian to navigate life in both camps. Because we are in both camps, aren't we? We are humans like everybody else. We have to put food on the table. We have jobs to go to. We have workplaces to attend to. And um, as I said, if you work for yourself, you still got to re- uh, interact with the rest of the secular world. But yet, as redeemed people... Uh, of God who have recognised Christ and Lord as our saviour, we live to the sound of a different drumbeat. We know we are called to live differently to how the world tells us we need to live. So this first tension is the tension of living in two different stories at once, two different cultural communities. And the second tension is that of the historical lack of support from the church. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I heard very little teaching on workplace theology um, or how to actually view work as God sees it and how our secular jobs fit into the outworking of the kingdom of God. I heard a lot about how to have a relationship with God, how to have a quiet time, how to develop certain character attributes, um, and loads on the life and the person of Jesus, which is all great stuff, all valuable stuff. But when it came to knowing how to actually live out my faith in my daily job, I was lost. I didn't even know how to reconcile the fact that I was a scientist and a Christian. They were at complete odds in these two narratives um, that I had been told. So if you'd asked me, I probably would have fumbled some sort of answer about witnessing to someone at the photocopier, kind of hidden behind my piece of paper. Oh, yes, you know about Jesus? Oh, no, that's fine. No, don't worry. Um, So my job... The other thing I might have said is, oh yeah, my job is simply to provide funds so I can give it to missionaries or to other or to pastors who are actually doing the real important stuff. I grew up thinking that the only parts of my life that were uh, important were spiritually significant things. Uh, going to church, quiet times, volunteering, talking about Jesus. And everything else was just biding time uh, or resource building for these spiritual activities. But they weren't actually important in themselves. Does anyone else grow up with that kind of theology or was it just me? Yep, okay, a few, a few hands. Um, and the absolute pinnacle of spiritual achievement was to be a pastor or a missionary. That's quite ironic, me standing up here. Um, anyway, it's a whole other story. <clears throat> if you wanted your life to really count, then this is what you should aim for. And as I said, I was at a complete loss to how to reconcile my desire to be a vet, which I've wanted to be a vet since I was six. Uh, and when I even became a vet, I was so passionate about my job, and I thought, well... 
In order to make it count, I must have to go to some far-flung country and be a missionary in my spare time or look after people with, you know, they have one cow and that's their whole life's livelihood. Um, so that was the only way I could bridge the gap in my mind between these two communities. And I grew up thinking that we must get through life however best we can because the physical life doesn't matter. It's the next life that counts. And our job is a means to an end. When we die, that's when real life begins. When we escape earth, that's when we enter true reality. What crazy theology. How depressing. How completely life-sucking. Work seemed pointless and meaningless, but yet I was passionate about my job. I was so confused. And to be honest, the local church didn't help. Now, some people have had great experiences, and that's amazing. Um, and I'm not necessarily pinning down my particular church that I went to, but in general, I also went to a Christian school, which may have had some influence here. But I don't know how many pinboards I've seen up in church foyers where it holds up pictures of missionaries and the countries where they are. We've got to pray for those people. We've got to bless them. They are the spiritual heroes. They are doing the will of God. And I would just feel like I was wasting my life. Let me tell you, for sure there are challenges for missionaries who are in third world countries. My Graham's parents, my in-laws were missionaries. I have heard many, many stories that, um, yeah, for sure, they need prayers and they need financial support. But guess what? So do we all. We are all missionaries. We are, and I would actually say it's, it's a really tough gig to work in a secular environment, almost more so than in a Christian environment, in a truly Christian environment. We need to realise that we are all missionaries there are um, missionaries in Dinsdale and Chartwell and Pukiri, and we all need to have pinboards where we're all up on those, on, on those faces up there because they're just as valid as being a missionary in Africa. Anyway, I need to get off this track because I'm going on. But we need to abolish the hierarchy of spiritual importance and realise that God calls us to work in different areas. And this is why I actually hope I'm never in full-time ministry um, for an extended period of time. I am going back to one day a week as a vet this year, and I'm really excited about that. I think that it's really important for me, especially as your pastor. It feels so weird saying that, but anyway. Um, I need to stay in the reality of the secular marketplace. Otherwise, I'm going to be in this Christian bubble. And as I said, I think it's a really tough gig to be in a, in a fully secular workplace, and I've worked in both fully work secular and fully Christian workplaces, so I feel like I've got some experience there. And sometimes the grand stories that we're told in church just seem so far removed from our work life. We're, we're, in addition, we're immersed in this culture that tells us everything else is important um, apart from our faith. And it's, it's often hostile towards Christians too with Christ-centred values. I heard one report of, I don't know if you, many of you um, were following the news last year when in Australia they had a, that say yes vote um, and it was all to do with blessing of same-sex marriages. And I heard a few people who were Christians who actually lost their jobs um, because they didn't vote in favour of same-sex blessings um, or of, yeah, of that law to be passed, regardless of the fact that their personal views had absolutely nothing to do with their jobs. It's just that their colleagues found out and they were totally um, ridiculed and actually penalised for it. So we're caught in this place between these two cultures. We've got a foreign kind of culture that we're in in the workplace, but then we don't have the support from the church. 
And we can often feel defeated at a loss to know what to do. We hear statistics that show that the number of people going to church is declining. Um, as Christians, we want to fit in, but at the same time, and we want, to, we want to do well in our careers. A lot of us have got great jobs um, or callings to do things that we really are passionate about. And we're actually not passionate about being in church or being a missionary or when I say being in church, I mean being a pastor. Um, so on one hand, we can feel like our story is completely irrelevant and insignificant to the majority of the world. But on the other hand, we have this deep-rooted faith and belief that God is the Lord of all uh, and the scriptural narrative is the truth. How do we live in this world? And I would suggest that the biblical uh, exiles, uh, the experience of the biblical exercise, exiles is really helpful for us as we think about this, especially the story of Daniel, uh, who really knew the feeling of exile and alienation. So I just found a picture of Daniel. Oh, whoops, wrong one. Uh, it still looks like, it's, it's the most least naff picture I could find. They look like a boy band to me, but anyway. So this is Daniel and his mates. Uh, for those of you who um, remember in the golden years, the people of Israel under David and Solomon were numerous. They were blessed. They were in their own land and they were living in a time of real prosperity. And it was the way that God had called them to live was the law of the land. So it was, it was easy. It was, um, yeah, they were living the way God had called them. But then as Solomon turned away from God and allowed pride to take his heart and his kingdom fell to pieces, the north and the south divided and um, the surrounding nations began to pick them off. The Israelites now exiles experienced a sense of great loss as they were carried off uh, out of their own land. They were invaded, destroyed, undermined, and you only have to read a couple of chapters of the conquest narratives to really just feel depressed in the Old Testament. The cultural voice that they were now surrounded in was a complete opposition to what they had lived in, uh, complete opposition to God's way and his call to Israel. In their history, God's narrative had been the loudest, but now they're surrounded by foreign cultures where um, they were some, saying something very different and foreign gods were, um, were the one to worship. And there was a sense of tremendous loss, and we can kind of feel a bit like that too with the fact that we used to live in a, in a Christian, at a time where we had Christian ethics. A lot of our social ethics are based on the time when Christianity was... Um, foremost in our society. We, we are in a post-Christian ideology time, post-Christian time. And uh, it brings a bit of pain to us, I think, because it feels like we're rapidly going downhill in our morals and our uh, social ethics. So we've got a sense of exile because we were once in a Christ-centered world and we know that one day we will be fully in a Christ-centered, redeemed world. But we're kind of in this in-between time. And how do we function, let alone evangelise, in a world where we, what we believe is um, mocked by other people? And this is the experience of the Israelites. They were defeated, driven into pain, and exiled between these two narratives, compounded, of course, by the fact that it seemed that God had disappeared and, had, and Jerusalem had been uh, smashed to dust. And this disconnect of support from the church can feel like God is not there for us either. We can feel like the exiles judged and abandoned and... Where are you, God, when I'm in the midst of this difficult work situation? Where are you when this boss is demanding something totally unrealistic from me? Where are you, God, when this customer or student was really rude to me? Um, why am I even in this workplace, God? Why haven't you come through and taken me somewhere else? 
uh, and evangelism and mission falls completely off the radar pretty quickly. But Daniel's actually a great model for us to how to live in these two worlds at once. And we're going to look at Daniel over the next few weeks uh, or the next few sessions because he manages to retain his identity in, in Jesus or in God as a child of God, but he still operates in a secular workplace and he does a really good job of it. He is an example of an exile turned missionary. He lives out a biblical theology of work. He sees his work as an outworking of faith with God and he seeks the fulfillment of God, of God's purposes in everything he does. And he understands God working through him and his work. So let's just remind ourselves of his story. He was trained as a nobleman. He was an advisor in the royal court of Jerusalem. We heard a little bit of that from Dee before. And he was set to serve the king in the sacred city of Jerusalem. And then before that purpose could be fulfilled, his country was invaded. And uh, a bunch of them were exiled. Uh, His king was decimated and he could have become really disillusioned, concluding that no longer my will can be carried out. No longer can I do what God has asked me to do. But instead he recognises that God is not a God only of Israel. He recognises that God is not only the God of the Israelites. God is the king of everywhere, of Babylon, of Persia, of the whole world, not just the church. God's the God of the political world, the health system, the educational system, the food industry, and the list goes on. For sure he may not be recognised in these places, but don't we believe that God's the God of the whole world? So Daniel felt called to be work felt called to work for God, but then he could be available to work with and for God anywhere. So wherever God placed him, he could use his gifts and talents. So instead of Daniel serving the Israelite king as was the, the plan, he was then placed to serve the Babylonian king. He's still in exile. His, he still experiences that feeling of loss and pain of being removed from his country. Uh, and he must have felt the pressure from his own people. Oh, Daniel, you're the lucky one. You're the one who's in the king's court. Um, you're a traitor. You've gone to work for the other side. You're serving a foreign king. So it can't have been easy for Daniel. Pressure on both sides. Working for the most powerful nation on earth. Um, a pagan king who actually took the highest tax percentage from any of the other ancient um, countries at the time. But he was an Israelite who loved the Lord. But he was against this, up against this massive... Um, force that seemed so powerful, so unstoppable, so unchangeable. The Babylonian kingdom was huge, the Babylonian empire. And then Persia came along, that was even more massive, but that's another story for another day. Daniel's story is a powerful example of someone who manages to live between these two stories in the face of um, real hardship, maintaining his identity as a child of God. Now, there are two very real temptations as we try to live in this tension. And the first temptation is the temptation to assimilate. Now, this is simply to become like the dominant culture that we're in, to assimilate or to be absorbed into the global narrative. And in Daniel's story, the Babylonians actually split the the, uh, groups of Jews up into smaller groups so that they would more easily assimilate into the Babylonian culture, forgetting their Israelite identity and Israelite God. And we see this um, temptation for the Israelites in the book of um, in Esther's story. Remember her uncle Mordecai had taught her to keep her family background and nationality secret, and he certainly wasn't the only one. So the temptation to assimilate is very strong. I wonder how many people profess to be Christians on Sunday and then have a very different work ethic on the other six days, indistinguishable from the rest of secular culture. 
It's very tempting to join in on the gossip conversations that happen in our workplaces. It's very tempting to make quick shortcuts here and there on the jobs that we're doing. It's very tempting to stay quiet when we see injustices occurring around us. So that's the first temptation to assimilate. And the second temptation is to withdraw into a ghetto, cluster into a bubble and not really engage with the world, to hide away so we can kind of just say, stay safe and in our little Christian groups um, and not engage with the world in which we are exiled into. And this is what the Israelites were doing down by the rivers of um, Babylon, gathered together apart from the Babylonian culture, strumming their harps and singing songs of woe. They were separated out and cursing and criticising the new place they were living. And I'm actually just going to ask Dee to come up and do a second reading, which is Psalm 137, written by the exiles in Babylon. Let's see how they got on. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, Happy are those who repay you according to what you have done to us. Happy are those who seize your infants and dash them against the rocks. Some of you will have heard these words somewhere else. By the rivers of Babylon. Okay, cute dance party. So most of you will probably sing that song on the way home in your car, apart from any of the worship songs. (laughs) Couldn't resist doing that. Um, So what's happening here? They're first and foremost lamenting and yearning for Jerusalem, not Yahweh. Um, They can't possibly comprehend how they can sing their songs to Yahweh in a foreign land. Uh, In fact, they refuse to sing when the Babylonians ask them to. And, I mean, what an invitation. Can you sing a song of joy? And they just turn around and hang up their lyres or their, their harps and they refuse to engage. And instead of praying for the prosperity of Babylon, they, they are like, yay, you who dash infants against the rocks. And, you know, they're just praying curses on Babylon. And there were false prophets too. Jeremiah 28 tells of Hananiah, the false prophet who prophesied about God smashing Babylon and restoring Jerusalem in two years. So he was going around trying to give the the Israelites, these um, exiled Israelites, some hope. Um, but actually, uh, and this is the temptation of the, of, the, of the ghetto, to get aggressive, to get thundery, um, judgmental, cri- critical, um, and never actually go and engage in the local culture. <coughs> I was thinking about, I wonder how many people who go and do the anti-abortion marches 
holding their placards and making a loud racket. And I wonder how many of those people actually go and help support the single mums who are, um, and help them actually decide to do something different, like carry the baby to full term and um, adopt out. I've, I had a friend on, I've got a friend on Facebook who just put a post recently about a girl she knows who got had an unplanned pregnancy. Um, and her Christian friends gathered around her and um, she's in the States, so it would have been quite an expensive process. It's very expensive over there. You don't get free childcare like here, um, especially if you need medical care. So her Christian friends had set up a GoFundMe page to help raise financial support to help her carry the child through to full term, deliver it and then go through the adoption process. Isn't that great? I mean, how much does that say more than banging on the doors of parliament? And for the exiled Israelites, uh, Jeremiah the prophet sent from the Lord said, actually, don't do that, do this. Oh, there they are by the rivers of Babylon. Another kind of romantic picture. <laughs> this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. (coughs) Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them declares the Lord. So have nothing to do with these false prophets selling false hope. Get out of the ghettos and instead engage with the foreign place where you're living. Settle down, plant gardens, establish yourself and don't just stop there. Actually pray for peace and prosperity and bless the pagan world wherever you are placed. (coughs) And the captives of Babylon in Psalm 137, as I said, weren't really doing that. But we see Daniel heeding the call of Jeremiah. He's able to stay authentically a servant of God first and remain in both worlds. And only God's narrative defines him as his identity. But he does engage in the second narrative. He engages in the secular world and he serves God um, in Babylon and very successfully. And we'll look at his story over the next few weeks. He prays for people in both places. He prays for both his fellow captives and the country who holds him captive. He keeps his heart for his people, and he doesn't compromise his faith. Uh, He is first and foremost God's servant. He hasn't assimilated to their culture, but he hasn't cloistered himself away in a ghetto either. So how do we do this? How do we learn from Daniel how to live authentically as God's people to avoid these temptations? And the first thing, we're actually just going to touch on the first point today, I'm going to unpack it over the next few weeks. But the first thing is to live authentically in our relationship with God. And we've talked about this in the Psalms. Pray and be honest to God about where you're at. And this is where lament comes in. Lord, why am I in this place? Why have you called me to this job? Um, I need you to come through for me because this is just so tough. Where are you working? Show me, Lord. Um, Be honest with God because it's really powerful, even if he knows everything already. He really listens. And when we are angry and we rail against him, he's okay with that. He's big enough for that. Um, And it puts us actually in the right place uh, to be able to hear from him. (coughs) 
So try to be open to what the Holy Spirit might say to you as you pray about your workplace. And then when you're in this posture of humility, you'll actually begin to see a shift, how you can move from being an alien in exile to place for mission. Now, an alien is someone who um, is from a foreign place, isn't he? Usually has big eyes, but regardless, they don't belong. And it's easy to feel like that in the secular world for all the reasons I've explained before. Our home is full union with God, and being in the secular world can actually feel like we're aliens. We're misplaced, um, we're misunderstood, and common alien theology is kind of what I grew up with. We're living out our days on this world until we can escape away um, uh, to our real home. Biding our time on earth, we don't have any influence, this material world doesn't matter. All of that is alien theology. But remaining feeling like an alien in exile actually isn't helpful, nor is it the vision that God has for his people to live. And something I found really helpful and actually more scriptural is shifting mindsets from the role of being an alien to that of an ambassador. (coughs) It's so much about a mindset. So that's the first thing. It's so much about our mindset. We're going to unpack what it means in our next session, but just briefly, um, an ambassador is something who is from a foreign country. His or her identity is very much foreign in that country, in that culture, in which they are sent to work. But yet they engage in the culture, don't they? They have, they have to, it's part of their job. But they retain their identity and represent their foreign country. And both the Old and New Testaments challenge this exile mindset, move us towards mission instead. Because God wanted the Israelites, remember, to be uh, a light to the nations. He wanted them to be the representatives of him in the foreign countries. And we're going to see how Daniel resisted these temptations and how he and his companions lived as ambassadors in a foreign land. I'm going to continue that next time we meet. Okay.